Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, we welcome Jeff Cavanaugh, author of The Live Enterprise, Create Continuously Evolving and Learning Organizations, who is with Infosystems, right, Infosystems? Infosys is good enough. Infosys is good enough. So, Jeff, please tell us about your background. Well, uh, began as an Indiana farm boy, as they say, uh, grew up in Indiana, as I was talking about earlier. And uh, after getting an engineering undergrad, went down to Texas, did some interesting work on Star Wars programs, you know, the old uh, kind of defense electronics world, learned a lot about where tech was headed, um, worked with some very smart people, lots of patents, and is really uh, an innovation rich environment. And he started solving problems. Uh, especially as the defense industry slowed down a lot, you know, post-Cold World, Cold War, um, really had the urge to get out and work with clients or other companies. And so got in the consulting business and for many years worked with mostly manufacturing and high-tech companies uh, all over the world and saw a lot of what um, worked, in some cases didn't work, and, and helped them grow. And, you know, got to work with the John Chambers of the world and some of these other leaders that, you uh, that well, you see what's going on the outside when you, you see from the inside what it takes to make that happen. You get an appreciation of how difficult that is. I've uh, been with Infosys um, about 16 years. And over that course, gradually moved from consulting into this, uh, this role where I am today, that it's called the Knowledge Institute, where we create and, and pull together all the knowledge from across the 250,000 employees and the 1,400 large clients and a lot of what's going on in the marketplace. And to be honest, I'd almost do it for free. You know, it's a publishing and research house. We, we get to interview and, and analyze data um, and write and basically pull the body knowledge forward. Some cases it highlights something we've done, but often it's just pulling the best of the market. And so the Knowledge Institute has been a great platform for the last two and a half years. Uh, I think we're really finding our way now or, or, or hitting that point of scale uh, after several hundred of assets, you know, reports, um, got our first full-length book out, and then um, a lot of videos and things like that as well with, with leaders. Uh, a lot of personal things as well. I love tennis, uh, and we get, and it's been great. We, we sponsor the ATP and French Open and the Australian Open, so we do a lot with analytics for, for tennis, and that's been, been great. So I won free tickets for that because I've gone to the U.S. Open. My girlfriend and I went uh, in January of 2020 to the Australian Open just before everything shut down. So I, I haven't seen the French yet. And so I'm, I'm all open to you uh, opening that door for some free tickets uh, to that tournament. I'm wondering, why did you write this book? Uh, well, first of all, we needed to evolve to this point. So there needed to be something beyond a report. And as I was looking around at the possible things we could do, it became aware of our own journey. Emphasis, if you look at the numbers, is kicked butt for a lot of years. High margins, good growth, one of the top sustainability companies, gone carbon neutral last year, which is a whole other topic I'm very proud of. Um, but yet you think, well, it's, it's basically a tech company. And over time, if I can use this phrase, asymptotically was kind of getting diminishing returns, you know, for a you know, uh, global distribution of tech services and a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so about four years ago, some painful decisions were made uh, about reorganizing, not, not getting rid of people as much as don't do this, do do this. We've got to get more into AI, probably a, two or three years before a lot of other companies really made the bets. Long story short is when I started thinking about this book, I was noticing all the great things that were starting to bubble up, the results of all of our work. Uh, and we've gone through that, that, that journey. And then it also was during the time of COVID. 
And instead of it being a wall that we hit, it was a challenge that, you know, 200,000 people, we were able to move from office to remote working in a week and didn't miss a beat. And then I noticed when we had this discussion with clients saying, you know what, keep your contracts. We got your back because here's what we've done. They not only said, that's good. They said, by the way, we'd like to do that. And so we just saw that maybe what we had done was worth sharing. Uh, and with my consultant hat on in the past, said, you know, rather than just have a collection of stories or say this was a great case study, let's dig into this like an operating model. You know, so, so somebody else could, could use it and, and use this broader question of how can large, but, but any established company, uh, compete with the digital natives or the stars, the Googles, the Facebooks, you know, the Amazons, what's different? And how can you take that? And so we, we went deep and organized it. Uh, and that's how the book emerged. And that's how it's structured. So, so how do you define the live enterprise? If you look at classic business literature, the, doc, the Dr. Michael Porter's of the world and five forces mm -hmm. and all that, you get kind of a sense that you do a thing. And then down the road, you change that thing. You set up your strategy, you set up your, 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 your operations, your plans. These are static things that periodically you make these big decisions and change. Well, anyone that's been around a while, and you and I spoke earlier, we've both been here longer than we'll admit. <laughs> Don't uh, go. Yep. Uh, we noticed that the rate of change in the market, if you're a customer for, for whatever that you're doing, is faster than the rate of change in your company to catch up. And if you, you, you can nod your head and say, oh, yeah, you know, our projects always take longer. By the time we're done, you know, the problem you're solving, it's already moved on. If you think about, though, that's a pretty depressing thing. That everything you do in your company, you'll always be behind. You'll, you'll always be catching up. So we thought, well, what if you design your company, you design all the systems and processes, and even your, your, your talent to evolve and to do it fast enough. I mean, that has to be a guiding principle at the beginning. That is what a live enterprise is. And if you want to summarize it, you've got all these small teams. So think about a thousand Silicon Valley garages or, or small teams that they're innovating. They're, they're working with customers or internal process, whatever it is. And yet you also have this shared digital infrastructure platforms that are centrally managed and that people can plug into. So one, you don't have to create all this overhead. It's kind of like you, if you wanted to create a, uh, a blog, you could tap into WordPress, right? You don't have to create your own thing. You tap into a platform. Well, in a company, having that shared digital infrastructure. So the idea is you can begin something. You can also, if it's a good idea, it's a venture capital model, all these little ideas, you curate them and you find them and you scale them quickly. So the, but here's the thing. Most companies can either be at scale or they can have lots of little teams running around to do both simultaneously and to be able to evolve and continuously learn. That's hard. In fact, it's, you know, no one's done that really. And that's the thing that we evolve to. That's what a live enterprise is. So this, this brings me to my next question, which I thought was interesting. By the way, the book is great. And it's one of those things you got to read a couple of times and still, you're, you, it's going to take more than that because there's so much information in there. I mean, you were really well-researched on uh, this topic about how to make changes. Can I changes add one thing the there? Because it is a business book, but the one of the things, and I think we're all kind of a combination of right brain, left brain, or art and science, you know, systems and, and, and nature. We said, could we look to nature for cues here? Because we noticed some things going on that beyond or just underneath the surface of um, nature, which is, looks simple and elegant, there's a lot of complexity. Yes. Like even yeah. the fact that in, in a trees, there's the, there's the wood wide web where all these trees are connected and they're actually sending nutrients back and forth and signaling. Now it might be an inch an hour, but they literally are moving around in this connected and this fungus actually does that. There, there's several of these examples. We decided that each chapter, each, 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 each concept that supported the model we would really dig into one of those, uh, like the ultraviolet coating on leaves that guides a bee, because one of the three colors they see is ultraviolet, actually guides them in. Well, what kind of similarity could we use to pull into the shared digital infrastructure? The point is that the beginning of each chapter, actually, you could be reading National Geographic 
And then we make that transition. And hopefully that also brings um, out not just something that's accurate, like a business book, but something that's actually very interesting. In fact, if you talk to Dr. Unrek Sala, who has a wonderful book about the nature of nature, and he's the head explorer for National Geographic. I mean, he's the one that plunges and goes beneath the glaciers, or, yeah. or he's the one saving the oceans, literally. Um, fantastic individual. We worked with people like that. And so we were able to weave in lessons from nature, uh, as well as the sustainability piece, which, which we culminate in this thing we call the triple helix, like the, the stakeholder capitalism and the environmental piece. But I want to highlight that as well, that we wanted to make sure this thread of the natural world with the fit, with the digital also came through. Yeah, and, and, and it did. Um, probably a lot of my questions are going to be probably more on the practical side of what I read from your book. Um, so you refer to the uh, traditional operating model as being dated. Uh, please describe what, what you consider the traditional op operating model and what model should companies develop now because it appears the improved model has a lot of elements to consider when you look in your book and you have those charts about all the things that has to have to be in these new newer models. So tell us about that. Well, traditionally an operating model has at its core, the value delivery. It's the thing you do, either it's the service, the product, and you have everything around it organized to support it. Uh, and in being in consulting for a lot of years, I had the pleasure or, or pain of seeing lots of them and talking with lots of people. And it, most of them, first of all, weren't actually thoroughly thought through. They were just boxes on a page. The actual connections and layers, it wasn't as rigorous as it was, let's say, for tech architecture. And they were a little too static, to be honest. They were containers where you put things. They didn't actually govern and show the flow. There'd be a process library and there'd be roles and responsibilities and metrics and maybe some governance. But essentially, it was just almost like folders where you put your documents and the executive had to put them together. The difference is it needs to be very fluid. So can you have this, this group of, of companies, or I'm sorry, uh, teams, microenterprises we're calling them, and this shared digital infrastructure, and then you're connecting them via what we're calling a knowledge graph. You know, um, Facebook has a social graph. LinkedIn has like a worker or employee graph. The idea is everything that's going on is captured and it's connected. And so you're constantly getting the inputs. And then the digital brain, which is both the, the um, deterministic kind of rules-based, and then as you get to more of the AI related, what you're doing with it. So it's a sense, analyze, respond. Uh, and I think that's the difference is you're taking the hard steps to actually bring that operating model to life and make it more fluid. And then against that backdrop, your people, you're providing a mechanism they can learn not just these large blocks of just-in-case learning, but these micro just-in-time from your platform, from whatever it is, even right before you actually uh, perform a task, getting a little bit of training or knowledge so you can do that effectively. That's the biggest difference is the fluidity and the constant evolving. So you write in the opening of the book about how the pandemic has changed business. And I got to believe just based on what you've just said so far, that uh, you have seen enormous change in just roughly, what, 14 months uh, since the pandemic started. So how has the pandemic affected uh, large enterprises and business in general? And what do you think we've learned from this? Well, for anyone that's been following business closely, forgive if I say things you already know, but I think we need to say it. It didn't necessarily or just change business, it accelerated some things that were going on. So it accelerated the issues in retail. It accelerated the comfort about having certain meetings, let's say remotely, or, or the kind of work that you could do when you weren't in the same room. And by the way, if you could be across town, then maybe you could do the same thing across the country, across the world. So in effect, the pendulum for globalization just swung back a bit. The other thing uh, that we notice. So there's accelerating trends that would have taken years to comfortably get to very quickly because now you had the, the, the less risk, you had the burning platform, you had to do it. Second, it highlighted the importance of, of cloud, cybersecurity, some of these trends that now are just so intrinsic that 
companies aren't even asking necessarily, you know, should this be in my budget? It's how much can I afford to put in? I have to do everything I can because you've got to move your, your workloads, your, your cloud and all these things enable everything else. The other thing that I think it shifted is we've talked about being customer centric for a long time. And it's kind of one of those, you nod your head, it's an article of faith. Employees have gotten second shrift at many companies. Our systems were the ones that had the green screen, the clunky things that wouldn't work. And yeah, if you were in a customer facing capacity, maybe you got some good things. What the pandemic did is one, it highlighted the importance of your employee from compliance and that you don't break laws to your wellness, your mental health, your safety, many different aspects. And then of course, arming and equipping the employees to be effective. Because if they are your most important asset, then you ought to feed them. You ought, you ought to, to nurture them. I think those are two things. And then this idea of resilience or insurance, because the classic just-in-time model is wonderful. It's efficient if all goes well. But it can also be kind of brittle because, you know, like the automotive, every four hours, those parts showing up at the OEM's final assembly, what happens when that truck doesn't, doesn't show up for a day? Yeah. What happens when those chips don't show up, as we're finding now? So I think, kind of like in your own life, you buy insurance for things that you hope don't happen, and you also have plan B. And I think people are realizing, maybe I can take a little off the top of my operating margin and plow it back to resilience. So not just the black swans, maybe all the striped ones and the other ones that you know will happen more often, that well, I'm ready for them. And I think the market not only is okay with that, they're going to say, wait a minute, what is your resilience plan? What is your risk plan? So risk, uh, I think, has, has, has come again to be a, a very popular topic. So I think those are the three big things that we're seeing. I had John Chambers on almost exactly a year ago uh, talking about his book, and I had Tim Draper on like maybe the week after that. And I thought it, it was interesting that the, everybody thought the economy was going to take this enormous hit. The stock market was going to fall like it fell in 2008. And yet, it, that's not what happened. It took a, a small bump in the road. But I think because of all the things that you said, that companies like yours help other companies adjust quickly. And so, aside from the businesses where you have to actually show up in person, like a restaurant or something along those lines, everything else kind of kept going forward. With yeah. When we saw how quick I, I, the drug was developed, nine months instead of a decade, that was pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, maybe we were varying a little bit. I think there are a couple of points to make there. One of them is there is some unevenness. Some industries, because of the nature of their the product, their work, or their service, did really well. And some of them uh, didn't. Obviously, the cruise lines and things like that. Yeah. I also think the small business versus Amazon is a good example. Uh, Amazon became not only convenient, it just not in a non-linear way really benefited from it in many small businesses uh, didn't because there were different characteristics. I do think that the the printing of money or the, the, the huge stimulus that also mm-hmm. papered over some other things. So I think some of these aftershocks will show up in, you know, in, in the months or years to come. But I think for the most part, you know, you pretty much hit it. I think the acceleration is the key word. People that were doing companies that were doing things that were conducive did them faster and better. And the ones that didn't, uh, I think, hit a major hiccup or they, they switched. But I, I do think we're going to see maybe like a, the other shoe dropping, you know, in some number of months where I think the aftershocks will affect some companies that at least to date have had some, you know, of a lifeline given to them. Oh, no question about it. Um, what is the quantum organization? Well, if you think about the operating model, well, one aspect of the company and all of its things has to be the organization itself, how it's structured. And we were thinking about what do you, how do you view this? Is it an org chart? Is it a list of people or skills? We came up with quantum organization because like in quantum physics, it's multi-state. Uh, and we thought that quantum, besides sounding really cool, uh, captures this notion that you've got to do multiple things simultaneously. Ah, that's a different concept. So one aspect is you, you're you driving your car. There's the Apple, the CarPlay or, or whatever that, that's capturing your entertainment, your communication. You, 
it knows who you are. Well, if you leave the car and go to your home, does the home know where you are? Does your computer know? So this idea of following you around in multiple ways, you know, organizing around you, uh, same thing in a company. You know, is it aware of the multiple states that you're in in your company? Uh, the other is with all these activities going on, there's different dimensions of them. Uh, so we thought that this idea of a multi-state, being able to look at a situation uh, from multiple perspectives um, and, and also be able to be organized in a very fluid way. If you notice in that chapter, we talk about the product-based organization. Mm -hmm. And those of you that, that are kind of agile savvy know that the movement in from projects to product-based organizations for software development. Well, in the last few years, especially for these more enlightened companies, that's left the IT world and gone to the business world. I mean, you got lawyers and HR folks doing sprints. They're literally having backlogs and burn down boards. And, and I was with some companies or helping them go through this process where these business folks were doing that. So the quantum organization is about embedding agile into the org chart and the way you do your work. That's it in a nutshell. And then the last piece is if you think about business processes, well, it used to be you'd have a process map or something static, maybe even some simulation. Well, if you have digitized your business processes, like Mark Andreessen said, software is mm -hmm. eating the world. Well, then it's become software. And if you think about what DevOps is, that part of Agile, DevOps, it's a software element. So it's not really just software DevOps, it's business ops. So business operations are now kind of digital, more and more so. Because if you can measure it, if you've got rules, it can be digitized. And certainly robotic process automation is a big part of that. So it, the quantum organization also incorporates this idea there's a digital dimension as well as the human and physical dimension of work. And a lot of it's being absorbed into these, um, these, autom you know, these automation packages or automation systems. And I think that duality of human and, and uh, digital continues to go. So it isn't that your robot is your asset, like a machine, it's actually a teammate. And so the quantum organization is also thinking about those things simultaneously. Business gurus always talk about the need for organizations to disrupt themselves. How do you define disruption and how is InfoSystems doing that? And how do businesses recognize when it's even time to disrupt the current model? Because we've seen Many companies go south, like Kodak and other Sears and other big names that didn't disrupt themselves and found themselves essentially out of business almost. Well, the first thing is, and again, the whole notion of a knowledge graph is be sensing, know where the market's going, know what's demanded, and have those, as Jim Collins would say, confront the brutal facts. You know, are you on track? Does a big change? Is it needed? And if that's the case, I think making sure that your underlying foundation is fluid. It's designed to evolve, even your architecture uh, in the systems that are involved, that you don't have once every three or five years, some massive project that takes three or five years to then change. So I think architecting from the ground up is important. Um, the disruption also might require a hard discussion that says, you know, it would take years to maybe go into these old systems maybe we can put a wrapper around them like a lot of folks. In fact, we had uh, many really good internal systems at Infosys. You know, we could go recode and do everything for them and redo them or have a fantastic or uh, mobile app that's, that reaches in, pulls everything out and, and has a nice uh, face to it. We did that. And so 100 apps became three or four, you know, one for recruiting, one for the employees, and then one for people that were more client facing. And it, it saved a lot of time. We were able to disrupt what we did without having to do a lot of technology change, the background, you know, immediately. But I think the disruption also can be a false, um, false dichotomy or ultimatum. There are certain things that you're doing pretty well. You can make incremental improvements, no reason to tear them apart. Make, make your 1% improvements every month. There are other areas that can have exponential. We call it process busting, you know, deconstruct it, find the good uh, components, 
put it together, different parts of the world, different different applications, use what's relevant. But I think having that duality where you disrupt elements of your business that need to be, but keep in place, because you can't have too many variables simultaneously. You can't change everything at once. You've got no footing. I think those are the hard decisions to make. What do you prioritize first? We chose a lot of our employee facing things first because that gave us that foundation and with 250,000 employees, as important as our customers and clients were, it gave us that flexibility. So I think making those choices on, on how you prioritize is as important because you can't just say, I don't want to be like Kodak, for example, that story and change everything because then nobody has a sense of continuity. And that's the other thing that we might be talking about. This idea of big changes well, they come from very small incremental changes. We, we have a concept called micro is the new mega. We looked at a lot of behavioral um, psychology, uh, things like atomic habits and nudge theory and things like that. And if, if someone has a very small change, you can do that and you can make it permanent and another and another and another. And pretty soon that, that's a pretty big change. And by aligning those micro changes with whatever you're doing with business change, your agile cycles and all that, you, you, you have things that stick. So change management is irreversible. It actually sticks and it's lower risk because let's say you're making these small changes, very small behavioral changes. Well, the problem you're solving might be different in a month or two, but you can't say, oh, requirements are locked in. I can't touch it for the next year and a half. In fact, we were fortunate um, if, if people are interested, they can just, just look out there uh, Harvard Business Review uh, published something on this topic that we wrote, Rafi and I, uh, earlier this month. So it's, a, so it's very timely as well. You talk about my favorite magazine. I read that like the people read the Bible. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing that piece. H- how hard is it to change an organization? I mean, when I, in the book, it'd say you had 240,000. So you already, you know, increased um, by about 5% your your the number of people working there. So at located, especially when people around the world, different cultures, all those things, how did you guys manage to do it successfully? Well, I think there's, there's two or three aspects. One of them is, I'd like to say, maybe you can't always replicate this. Nanda Nilakani is our chairman, founder. He was one of the, the first you know, seven or eight people in the entire company way back when. And he left when he got to a certain point, did some things like cabinet level uh, roles with Indian government and then came back. And to be honest, that was a catalyst because there's something about from the very top, somebody who not only has a vision, but they're rolling up their sleeves. I mentioned this micro change every six weeks, the chairman and founder (laughs) has a two hour session that some people in my team are on that with people making these changes every six weeks, something in the company is changing and he's getting a view and making sure it happens. So I think that's one element, somebody very senior and respected that everyone else knows it's important. Second is, although there was some churn maybe three or four years ago, the senior leadership is pretty consistent. We have a phrase in basketball calling it the no look pass, yeah. you know, where you, you've, you've played together enough. You kind yeah. of know each other. And I think that's been key too, because imagine a lot of senior executives who have worked together for a long time if you have that trust, if you have that knowledge, you can be in this pandemic, you can be all disconnected, but still kind of know what each other is doing and, and trust motives. So you can make big decisions pretty quickly. If, if, if nobody knows each other, if they've all been thrown together in the last year, there's a lot of protection going on or caution that maybe you make incremental decisions because you're not quite sure you're testing. Or in this case, someone knew what the other person had done for the last four years. Uh, or you know, five or ten. In some cases, like like Ravi Kumar, our president, I've worked with him for twelve years. So, you know, I think that also helps. And if you have those things in place, I think you can be more bold. Um, and if you don't, then maybe you have to show success from a pilot. But regardless, I think that those two things help a lot. So here's a question from the audience. Can you talk a bit more about how how you help companies choose what they change and what they don't? In my experience, as you said, can be really hard. Lots of demand, little capacity. And part of it's prioritizing. And and I think 
part of it too is being pretty ruthless on what do you stop doing? I think we all have this idea of adding more. You know what? It's a good idea. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And then what happens is there's a bit of a mediocrity that creeps in because you just can't give everything attention. So I think, and then it goes back to strategy 101, you know, what do you say no to? Saying no to a lot of things. I think also understanding the relationships. Uh, you know, if you do one thing, does it enable you to do something else? The other is being bold and backing up with data. Uh, still in this day of analytics and data everywhere, uh, I think it's getting better, but a lot of decisions are still made without solid uh, logical support. I'm a big fan of the pyramid principle and being able to organize thinking. When you have structured logic, you've got data backing it up, uh, and you present it in a, in a compelling way, you know, vi- you know, the visualization, I think then people can get behind it. Uh, I think too often people either try force of personality or the data is buried. It's kind of like, you know, the, unfortunately, the challenger situation years ago where the data was there, but it wasn't presented right and people couldn't make the decision, even though it's kind of staring at them. I think those are the biggest areas. The other is technology has made such a leap forward that if you can take a, a, a look and say, what can technology do for us? Like I was, I, I, I do a podcast periodically as well. And yesterday, someone who's head of science for, um, for uh, an AI company that does a lot with the government, these intelligence agencies and making, making sense of it all. Um, and they were saying that just capturing the data and making it easier to work through, giving people confidence it's amazing what can happen once you do that. Uh, and there was, in fact, in, in natural language processing. That's the example I was looking for. They've done it for years, but two years ago, a breakthrough happened where these models could be generated through code. And so all of a sudden, 90% of your time was spent being creative instead of 10%. You know, technology every few months is, is bubbling up with these things. So I think using technology to its fullest uh, is also important. Because these are non, non-linear levers that we have. I think it's important that we make use of them. So uh, when you study competitors and you talk about this in the book, what should someone look for that could help their own organization improve? I think there's an inward out and an outward in. I mean, obviously, we, we're in a world where there's lots of information you can get. They're good practices. Don't want to say best practices because the moment you say it's the best one and someone else knows, <laughs> yeah. you know, so it's, it's a good or leading practice. I think we should be very diligent and proactive about that. Uh, I think the other is look at what you have. You know, is it fit for purpose? Uh, is your market changing? I was doing something earlier today with one of the folks on my team and about the blurring and the blending of industries. In this case, it was manufacturing. Um, how... Not only are your competitors changing, because you know Amazon seems to compete with everyone, and so does Google, because data monetization, it's an opportunity for you as a company, and yet it's also a threat because people that are companies that are good at that. So I think the the biggest thing is, first of all, get connected. Make sure that everything you have is connected. Because once you connect it, then you can observe it. And once you observe it, you can analyze it. Once you can analyze it, then you can develop insights, observe patterns. So don't jump to strategy. Don't because you can get bottoms up on the data. Just connect it, and you've got the data. And right now, you know, one of the dividends of the smartphone wars has been these sensors and IoT have just plummeted in price. These endpoints can continue to give information to you, and uh, in whatever business you're in and your employees, your customers, you have a unique sense of information, data coming at you, that if you make sense of it, your decision will be much more informed. I think people overlook that because it's mundane, uh, but at the same time, it's very powerful. And once the insights start to come, then you refine and you essentially have built your own models. I think the word model is also a misunderstood one. Everyone needs a model whether it's a framework, whether it's an actual architectural model. And as you get data and you start understanding relationships, then you can make bold decisions because you've got the confidence behind them. 
how do you recruit the right people in a mammoth organization to accept that change? Because people who are attracted to large organizations rarely embrace change, unlike people like me who are uh, attracted to early stage and startups and like, uh, like all of that. But once you get to be a big organization, everybody wants to have rules and they don't like a lot of change, hence why they're attracted to it. State stability. I think it's a, it's a traditional view. I'll take just, just to maybe a, a little bit of a deflection on that or, or sure. a bit of a turn. I think today, first of all, bifurcate that. You've got experienced tires and you have people coming from campus. I think uh, I'm dating myself or aging myself, but um, daughters are old enough that they've been through that cycle and they'll say, all right, dad, my generation, or, you know, my group, or here's what the deal is. And what they're finding, I think, especially those that came of age or grew up during the Great Recession, they actually do want some stability. They want the purpose. They want all the cool stuff. Right. But they also want some stability. And I think if they can find a company that does allow them to have a good, you know, their purpose, um, as well as some level of stability, and they get to do cool things and they get to learn a lot. I think that's the mix they're looking for. Certainly, you know, we've committed, we've already hired 13,000 people in the U.S. in the past, you know, year or two. We've committed to 12,000 more. So we're keenly interested in what uh, traditional engineering, liberal arts, and now we're even reaching into community colleges. So we're thinking really hard about the numbers and also the different groups. You know, how can we pull in, you know, a diverse group, different ways of thinking, in some cases, degree programs, in some cases, uh, credentials, same thing in, in Europe, same thing in Australia. Uh, we have got a pretty good engine in India from the old days, but you know, from, from history. But I think that's one of the things that we're seeing is they do want a combination. And even the experienced folks, I think they want a sense of freshness. They know they have to reinvent themselves. And so if they're at a company where the only friction, the only thing holding someone back from learning and training is their own motivation, then that's that's also an essential part of the live enterprise model. In fact, we focused on this learning management system, this platform, because we had this massive 200-acre campus in Mysore, India, where 20,000 people at a time would be trained, and it was great, but they could, we couldn't all get there. So how can we stuff that in your mobile device or your laptop? Anytime, anywhere, any device, any person. And then we found that once we did that, within a year... I think 65, 65% of our population across the board was spending more than 35 minutes a day training because they had access to it in bite-sized amounts. And so part of it was top-down, part of it though was democratizing it. And so whether you do it yourself or you partner with a Coursera or Udacity or, or some other organization, that has to be there because as important as compensation is and some other things, people are thirsty. And they're going to get it somewhere. If they can get it from you as a company, that's one more value proposition element that you have for them. Yeah, I don't think money is the um, the pure motivator here. I think if they feel like that they can make an impact and what they're doing is important, then they'll stick with it. And especially our kids, because you and I have kids the same age, my daughter keeps saying, I don't want your life. I want more work-life balance. And mm-hmm. when she's looking at organizations, she's being recruited now by one of the top consulting firms in the world. And that was her first question. And it was about work-life balance. So I think part of that is being put into play here in a significant way by our daughters and following generations. Could you please talk about the project and concept of Indian Stack and how you used what was learned there to improve uh, your company? Sure. Well, like I said, Nanda Nilakani, who... For those of you that don't know, is kind of like a Henry Ford and Bill Gates kind of rolled into one for the, for, for what happened. You know, grew an industry, uh, especially the early days. But we actually went beyond the company, though. Uh, from maybe it's because the the roots were in India, but uh, thinking about sustainability from day one, scarce resources, lifting up the community, a lot of social programs. Anyway, at some point, I think it was two thousand eight. Correct um, me if I'm wrong. The he stepped back. You know, somebody else became CEO, and he actually joined the Indian government or in a cabinet level position because 
they just didn't have an equivalent of social security numbers, for example, or universal ID. So they had this thing called the ADAR, A-A-D-H-A-A-R initiative, unique ID. And so everybody had a digital ID. If you think about it, how do you do that across a billion plus people? How do you do it where there's no fraud? And so very quickly, he, with a few other individuals, they using open source, using these microchange concepts, uh, were able to pull together something, had biometric, so fingerprint, you know, retinol. Uh, they were able to connect. People could get uh, government payments. They could open checking accounts. I mean, it, it allowed them to exist because hundreds of millions of people just didn't exist on the grid. Uh, and it was just phenomenal. And I think over a billion people in six years became part of this thing. A billion. In the IMF, uh, the International Monetary Fund, some of the economists said this should have taken 46 years. And they did it in six. And, and it, was, it was just so many good things that happened. And it was done in so inexpensively. And it was so fluid. Uh, he was thinking, you know, why can't we do that maybe in a enterprise, in, in a corporate setting? Before he left, he said, you know, the ID was part of it. There's a payment system. Basically, all these other things that, are, that form our economic, our financial systems, they put in place. So the stack is a whole series of these applications that have allowed their financial systems to be more robust, resilient, more inclusive, and essentially catch up to things we take for granted in other parts of the world. So that's what the India stack is. And so it's more of these government services um, that are digital uh, as well as connecting to the financial. And what he did was say, you know, if this worked in, at this scale, how do we apply it to enterprise? And then before I, you know, before he tried it, applying it to a lot of companies, he said, you know what, let's do it at Infosys first. Let's make sure we prove that this hypothesis can work. And so that was the challenge he gave to the chief architect of the company, Rafi Tarifdar. Uh, and, and as we worked on this, a lot of learnings, and then this, the live enterprise is what emerged from it. One of the things I thought was interesting in your book is you write about Adam Smith's invisible brain. What is that and how was that incorporated into your company's planning? Well, it was, if the Industrial Revolution, it was the Adam Smith's invisible hand, we're saying the digital will be the invisible brain. In other words, that pervasive brain that sits and works with the knowledge graph. So you have this in your own life. It might all be in your head, but, but the idea is, can you digitize it? Can you pull these things together as a company and then act upon it? And it's the ability to not only connect everything, observe it, uh, analyze it, make a decision and have this feedback loop. And every time you do a little more of it, you automate, you're applying AI and you're freeing up humans. It's kind of like putting an Iron Man suit on. You can see farther, be more powerful, do more things. Uh, and the more of the white space you pull out, the more of the overhead, the delays, the cost to get the same thing or more done, then we're taking full advantage. Because even analysts today, so much of the time is spent pushing paper or moving files around, saving them, knowing you did this over here, you put it over there, you let somebody know what happens and all that's pulled together. And yes, the privacy and, and all kinds of other issues pop up along the way. That's essentially what, what it is. And then when there's that trust, this is where the blockchains of the world come in, between parties, then supply chains can, can function. Money can flow across borders. You can trust the source of a product that it was sourced the right way. Uh, you can have circular supply chains. You can monitor true carbon footprints. All kinds of things happen. And that's why we say the digital brain as well as that knowledge graph is the key to the future. So uh, now that you mentioned about money as well, what do you think of uh, cyber currency? I mean, where is that gonna fit in here? To be honest, that's an area that I'm not an expert. Uh, uh, it, it, I think there's two aspects. One is based upon verification and trust. It allows, uh, like, I keep going back to blockchain. I keep going back to this. Right. This That's what made me ask that question. Source. Sure. Yeah. So in that respect, it's great. Uh, and so the question is, does it veer more towards governments adopting it? So it's kind of like a quasi, 
or is there truly something that floats outside? Because when it starts floating outside of any regulation, then it becomes interesting because then you're actually tugging at the social fabric or established norms on how uh, governments and societies interact. I think that there will be oscillation. I think what's going on now is good. In fact, I have a picture on my smartphone the other day. I was at this convenience store, the 7-Eleven, and noticed there's two ATM machines. There was the ATM machine and the Bitcoin ATM machine. The Bitcoin no kidding. Machine. Yes, yes. And it said one, you know, Bitcoin equals $61,920. I said, this is very interesting. Very I never just, saw that before. Yeah, it's just, and again, in a suburb of the Dallas area. Um, and so I think it's starting to permeate. I think what has to happen, unfortunately, is the froth will come off and people will start to understand what the real value is. I mean, if you think about what value of money is, it's a store of value. It's a medium of exchange. And there's a trust element to it. And the store of value piece, well, why is it valuable? Well, maybe there's a you know, limited amount out there. Is it truly a medium of exchange? And, and then the other piece, of course, is the trust and acceptance. Um, the more digital it gets, the more cash goes away, the more we don't use you know, government-backed, then, then we get to this more international global thing. And that's a whole other dimension. You know, who is that global authority? And do they have too much power? Or is it truly like the web where it's this, this the wild west and there's no one really in charge except for some standards? And those are open questions. I don't have answers to those, but those are the things I'm looking at. Yeah, it's beyond my comprehension, I have to say, because I keep reading and mm -hmm. I've had lots of people on this show uh, talk about it. And, you know, on cyber currency, I just don't really get it because it's still backed by dollars. And the only good thing I see out of it is, is if you're running clandestine operations, you want a way to trail your money. That makes perfect sense to and me. And then whenever you have something that goes up by more than 50%, you yeah. have to ask yourself, does this look or smell like a nice Dutch tulip? Yeah. <laughs> In other words, is it just people frothing? And then the moment people back away from that, 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 that froth, does it settle back to something that's below the floor right now? Yeah. Or, or, or is it that natural uh, evolution where it's still going to be double or triple? It's kind of like any industry. There's this exuberance and then there's a reality and you find a floor where there's real value. But I'm not sure we really know where that, that solid base is yet. Well, I, I didn't listen to Tim Draper and I told him I was still confused about it when he was saying it at 200 bucks a, uh, a Bitcoin, he said it'll be over 20,000 and it did. I don't think he envisioned 60,000 for a Bitcoin, but uh, you know, I, I kind of think it's almost like gambling. That's when I, I look at it exactly. now, it's a crazy you stock know. that doesn't make yeah. any sense. How but again, the below the, the last thing I'll say on this is, if you look at blockchain, if you look at the idea of trust in a world where you can literally fake videos, and things we thought were, you know, were, were easy to, then the idea of trust becomes more and more important in the future. And so if these cryptocurrencies help with the trust, they will take off. If they're, you know, if there's questions, they won't. Somebody's going to game the system. They always do. It doesn't matter what it is. Somebody will eventually game it. And, you know, everything that was created was meant for good things. And then somehow people corrupted it for bad uh, and we've seen that over the history of man. How does the live enterprise increase the velocity of new ideas and innovations, especially as big an organization as yours, as even small organizations have a hard time doing that? How does how yours enterprise do that where somebody comes up with an idea and, and can move it quickly through the system to where you're going to say yes or no or, and then execute? Again, going back... To that duality of many, many small teams working. Yes, they have some org, org structure, but it's it's fairly permeable. I mean, yes, there are some roll-ups, like there's an industry sales team or there's this service team or the HR function, but there's a lot of fluidity. Uh, and as, 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 as a need arises, let's say it's like a venture capital model and you pull in the right people to accomplish that task. You have your, your day job, but you might pull in somebody on a part-time basis with expertise, like in legal, like we just did this thing where we created a gig platform for the company because we saw you know, the part-time work. It was difficult for contractors. We pulled in people from legal and HR 
part-time basis to figure it out. Well, you know what? Then there's a stage gate. So if you apply a venture capital VC model, then good ideas get funded better. Other ones get starved, they disband, and people focus on other things. I think that 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 quick churn or the evolution, that cadence, combined with this digital runway or this shared digital infrastructure, that gives you the scale to quickly grow. Because it isn't that you're you're going after fiefdoms like 40 teams all say they need millions of dollars so they can go pilot whatever they're doing. There, there's some, some shared infrastructure you can tap into platforms to get things done. And things that do well, ideas that do well, become businesses, become functions, become organizations that have lasting power, you know, lasting you know, tenure. Uh, those that don't, it's not necessarily a mistake as much as that wasn't the opportunity we thought. We didn't go from seed to series A to series B to whatever. And I think if you apply that model, then you go, ah, good ideas get funded. So the trick is, the the challenge is, this quantum organization set it up so you can have a VC model. You can have this central group, this small central group of of, of infrastructure or platforms that you can plug into. And it's the combination of those things. Dozens, hundreds, thousands of these across a company. That's kind of where we are with it. And it drives people that want hardcore org structures crazy, right. but it also has a fluidity. You don't have to have complete knowledge of what's going on. Somebody in Poland might understand what's working. And you know what? Go feed that. Something else, like the pandemic, it hit different countries in different ways. So this whole return to workplace or, or certain aspects of working, maybe it's, it's, it's manifests itself differently. That's Okay. Uh, and where it does, it is common, we get the economies of scale. And I think that balance, yeah, it's hard, but I think that's what's required going forward. I think you said uh, that your company has changed, like, and, and, not, and not every company has, where before all the decisions were centralized. But I think you said that it's kind of been moved out of being centralized and folks in Poland or wherever are making decisions that are best uh, for them but still falling under the same mission as the company. Is that, does that sound about right? It is. It is. I, I think that the, the one central area, I think there's still a really strong hold for finance, which you can say is good or bad, but definitely has kept us, you know, you know, good, you know, profitability and resilience and be able to deploy capital. I think from almost every operational decision, uh, certainly ones that relate to the market and the people, they are being pushed to the edge. I think there are some of there are some of the decisions, like uh, like I mentioned, the broader financial ones, uh, and some of the platform ones. There's still inputs are coming from everywhere, but there are some centralized ones because I think they're consistent enough, and they affect enough. But more of the decisions are absolutely uh, pressed to the edges. Uh- you talk about leadership skills. Should companies be grooming their leaders in a different way now? I mean, how, how should they leadership leaders be groomed to run the companies going the next 10, 20 years? The answer is yes. And I think if you go way back, leadership was command and control and middle management was a lot of uh, messaging. messaging. You took the strategic message, you pushed it down to your unit. And vice versa, you rolled it up. You, you know, you were a connector. That has gone. The, the 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 middle manager as a intermediary that doesn't exist. I think a few years ago that happened, but but certainly now, the leader needs to have a portfolio. Needs to be. It's it's almost like the professional services. You know, I came from with consulting, or investment banking, or accounting, or, or law, or doctor, where the more senior you get you're still having clients. You need to become an expert and you aren't just managing. You you need to be a a senior person in that domain where you are. So I think the idea that you are a producer, if you wanna call it that, uh, so you're leading through that as well as the people side. Another thing is uh, embrace, embrace enthusiastically the notion of servant leadership. You've gotta be in a service mode uh, because First of all, it's a different world than you know a few decades ago or even a couple where people expect that. Maybe they want more of the nurturing, whatever it is. So I think taking a servant leader uh, approach, it's very also some very other centric. 
uh, and you and you make sure you know the problem, you empathize, you, your employee, your customer, you know, the, the person you're working with. I think it's a combination of those three things: expertise at what you do, real have expertise, being able to be fact based to enhance that, uh, being able to think critically and, and be you know have that stack of skills, and then be that servant leader, um, but not be you know not be eccentric or crazy, but um, but definitely be entrepreneurial and know that being safe really isn't safe anymore. You know, I think today's leaders realize that unlike when you and I were entering the workforce where you didn't have as many choices of where to work, now, like you said before earlier, that you have to uh, realize that your employees are customers too and do everything you can to make the experience uh, a good one for them or somebody, or they can work for somebody else and then not even near their own home across the world. And so now you're competing for the best, mm-hmm. the best and brightest. And if you don't treat them in a way that they feel they should be treated, they're out of there. You know, they're, they don't have yeah, to worry. And, about and ironically, they're even if you do have the better value proposition, you pay pretty well, you give the training and you're generally pretty good. If you don't make sure that the employee understands that in other words, you might be doing all the right things, but if they don't perceive you are, or for some reason you're not connecting, they might go to a worse situation. We've seen the whole, you know, the whole grass is greener thing. Maybe it's gratification. Maybe it's uh, you know, expectations evolve, keeping things fresh. So it isn't even just doing the right things. It's communicating in a way to make sure that you're confident that your employees do sense it and they are getting it. So I think the other aspect maybe I, I, I missed in your previous question is leaders need to be good communicators. Yeah, that's why I was asking about all the different skill sets that they're going to need today, as opposed to, you know, when we entered the workforce. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. so evolved now that those leaders uh, wouldn't even recognize the workforce today or how to operate a business. That's right. Um, My last question is, uh, what changes in education, possibly high school, but for sure college, do you think should be made as we're going forward here? Do we have another hour for this one? <laughs> uh, in all seriousness, seconds um, or less, right? Yeah. In all seriousness, I think changes are underway. On the one hand, I'm troubled. On the other hand, very excited uh, about where education's going. I, I do think at each stage, um, as as students enter the next level, you know, are they really prepared? Especially after this past year, are they prepared for the next level and the next and the next one? So, for example, the expectation of an employer about what they get from a four-year graduate. I think there's a reason why companies like ours have added eight to 12 to 16 weeks of training after they came on board to make sure they're quote unquote client or professional ready. Uh, at the same time, uh, I'm, I'm excited about what like Indiana University, uh, Ivy Tech in, in Indiana, 100,000 students at a community college level. They're pulling in first-generation college students, single mothers, uh, all kinds of different underserved groups that they're giving them this on-ramp, either two years of school or four years, very applicable vocational degrees, things that are very relevant, um, even other schools. And they're making it very practical, experiential. So I think that there needs to be a tight connection between the public and private, you know, employers and, and the, uh, the academics and the governments. And in several states, this, this, is, this is manifesting itself. So I think it's positive. Uh, if politics cannot get in the way, I think there's some very well-intended, smart people who are doing the right things at a grassroots level. And I think these experiments are going on in multiple states in the US, multiple countries. And I think if at the national level, the best of those experiments can be coordinated, it's kind of like the best ideas, I think we'll be in good shape. I think the top-down approach misses some of the good things that are bubbling up. Uh, and I do think it, it's also important that the universities, the, you know, the ones with the, the research and the longer term focus, they don't just run to things that are very short term because we do need longer term thinking, you know, whether it's medicine or there's some disciplines that it takes a long time. So I think there's a healthy mix of the things that are very rapidly evolving and the things that do take some time to build your base. That's what I see going forward. Jeff, I have to tell you, it was a fast, great hour and one of the few times I've ever seen where nobody left. 
there was not a single person who signed off during this uh, time. So obviously, this was a great discussion. I hope people will get your book. It's, you did a really great job. We look forward to staying in contact with you. I hope everybody has a great uh, weekend. And thanks again for taking the time to speak with us. And come join the Knowledge Institute, emphasis.com slash IKI. We have hundreds of, of things like this that support it. They're free, and hopefully it will help whoever comes to see. If you email me this, I'll make sure it gets to everybody because I send them all the link to this interview. Got it. Thanks for having me. Have a great rest of your day and a great weekend. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.